0: You think about the impact that's going to have on you know your confidence and the confidence of people in general if we're always focusing on maybe what they're not quite as good at and what they need to work on. Well, actually, why not focus on what got them there in the first place? It's interesting that about Zlatan. So it makes you wonder if there's a difference between like what he says publicly and what he genuinely believes. That's a reminder I think for athletes as well is to always consider the, the body language that you're portraying. The prevalence of mental health symptoms among athletes, elite athletes, is high. And I, and I think it's, it's important that, that the stigma around you know, seeking help is, you know, is banished really.
1: Hey I hope you're keeping well I'm Brian Moylet former rugby player now mindset and performance coach and welcome to the pod this podcast is about well-being and high performance and in it you will learn how you can be happier more fulfilled and more successful I recently wrote the book on how to become a pro rugby player forward by Robbie Henshaw which went to number one in the charts and you can get this now on Amazon and Audible with the links in the show notes Please connect me now over on social media at Brian Moylet and at Offfield Rugby. If you enjoyed the pod, please subscribe to it, leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening now. And also, you can send it on to some friends. Would really appreciate that. All right, we'll get into today's episode. Cheers. Hey, hope you're well. Today, I'm chatting with Adam Nichols, who is Professor of Psychology at University of Hull and we have had a chat before, so two weeks ago we recorded a podcast, just a heads up, we recorded a podcast two weeks ago and then when I was editing it after the audio, there was something wrong with it, so anyway, if you hear us, maybe mention throughout that the last time we talked, that was it, it was a podcast that didn't get out, um, but cheers for jumping on again, Adam.
0: Yeah, no, my pleasure, Brian, uh, good speech to you, so yeah, I think you know we just discussed quite a few things, so we've well, we got a new few other things in my mind that you know I've reflected on so hopefully this one'll be better than the, the last one
1: yeah well let's start wherever then what 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 have you been thinking of recently
0: well, i've just been thinking about about burnout really and just the you know how prevalent it is or can be among young elite athletes and that you know how it's important that, that coaches are aware of the, the physical and the psychological load on athletes and just just to make sure that's managed well and, and manage it with individual players because some players may have a higher tolerance than other players and just just being aware of that really.
1: Yeah and yeah, we chat about the last time and, and one you gave three points, and one was that people diminish their achievements related to burnout. So, how yeah. do we? I suppose how would coaches be aware that players might be getting towards burnout?
0: Yeah, so there were there are three kind of three elements to burnout. So, so number one is as you mentioned, devaluing. Their achievements or what they've accomplished, so that might be, oh, you know, even though I won that, you know, the opposition weren't very good, or uh, physical and emotional exhaustion, uh, and so that's tiredness, just, you know, feeling lethargic, not kind of not feeling up for performance, and also finally a reduced sense sense of accomplishment. So, so as a coach, you're looking for those. Those sorts of uh, symptoms among players, or so when they're when they're talking about things, I think as a, as a coach you can also monitor uh, kind of levels of stress and, and emotions among athletes. Um, but just I guess if you know the player, which coaches do, just maybe a change in a player, a change in their body language, a change in how they talk about rugby, a change in how they are with their, their teammates and just, just being kind of looking out for those those potential symptoms because it could potentially be, you know, a player is is, you know, kind of close to burning out or certainly experiencing high levels of stress which are linked to burnout.
1: Mm. And then what would be some things like is it simply take a day off training or reduce the load or or what would be some things that coaches could do so you've done a lot of work in rugby league in the super league what would be something say a super league coach it's identified a player okay yeah i am i do have these three symptoms i am a bit tired and i'm a bit feel it's a little bit stressed what what then is the next step
0: yeah i think first and foremost would be to kind of reduce the strain on the athlete so monitor their training and also monitor their recovery so find out are they recovering properly in their own time? You know, do they have a disciplined recovery or are they going out on the piss, you know, after matches? Do they have enough time between sessions to, to recover sufficiently? And then potentially also actually teach them some coping strategies. And we know that athletes who use problem focused coping strategies, so strategies that are aimed at at solving the problem, uh, are less likely to experience burnout over time. So potentially that could, that could be helpful to athletes. So monitoring the physical side, <clears throat> monitoring their well-being, and then teach them potentially different coping strategies to deal with the, the, the experiences that they're having at the time.
1: And what would be some of those coping strategies?
0: Yeah, so things such as uh, mental imagery, so, so relaxation training, uh, positive self-talk sort of training, uh, uh, logically analysing the situation. So for example, if they're, if they're devaluing their, their accomplishments, absolutely, well, get them to think about them uh, as if you were a friend. So how would your friend view what you've accomplished, the average person in the street? Because if you I think professional athletes, high-level athletes, have a tendency to compare themselves to others. And, you know, people that you know. They say, if you're an academy player, the highest-level academy player in your your team who's maybe played first team or bench for the first team, and you think, well, I'm nowhere near the near, near near to the first team. But actually, then if you actually then compare yourself to a player who's a, you know maybe an average club player or who's you know a school player who's not played this high level, actually your accomplishments. You know, are very, very good. So, just maybe thinking about things differently, getting the place uh, to challenge themselves on actually, you know, your accomplishments are, are good. What you've achieved is very good. And, you know, to remember that really.
1: Yeah. And what you say there is so interesting and so true. I think society wide, because we, all compare ourselves to others or it's just it's a common thing you know and that's why you have these sayings like comparison is a thief of joy and we're aware of that and something i realized about three four years ago was that you never compare yourself to someone who's worse than you unless you bring awareness unless you hear what you just said and and it's always you're always comparing up and you're always then diminishing yourself and this is in every walk of life people do it and something I found very difficult and I think it has been because I was ingrained as an athlete is is saying yeah that was good you know like nothing is ever good enough or it has and it's something you geez that's really recent in the last five six months or you know very recent that I'm, I'm starting to be able to work on that, kind of?
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think some of that comes with the way in which performance is analysed. So you go into a performance analysis session on a whatever day it is, a Tuesday, whatever. Oh, these are the things that the team did wrong. These are the things. And I think there's probably sometimes more emphasis on what we've done wrong than what you've done right. And that kind of sets this mindset um yeah i I really think about i think yeah that is so important to actually focus on what 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 are the things that you've done well what what have you achieved as a person and 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 that's probably a good exercise for everyone to do is that
1: yeah and my whole journey it was always that work ons oh your left handed pass you're like i it got to a point where I genuinely would have forgotten what I was good at, at times. And you're just struggling. You're like doing your very utmost to help the team, to do everything you can. But you are just conditioned to know what you're not good at. And, you know, work-ons, work-ons, work-ons. And it's something, once again, the last recently learning, just on my coaching journey is um, coaching strengths. And it's called positive psychology. And... It's crazy like you know when I'm out in the grass just picking out the things like great catch Adam, great kick Adam and the other players see that as well so you don't need to say oh Adam don't drop the ball get your hands up see someone who caught it well caught early and applaud the good stuff and everyone starts to see it the person themselves get huge esteem and they feel good and it's just it's so obvious but I don't think it's done a lot.
0: No, yeah, I completely agree. And, and you think about the impact that's going to have on you know your confidence and the confidence of people in general. If we're always focusing on maybe what they're not quite as good at and what they need to work on, well, actually, why not focus on what got them there in the first place? And and of course, we all need to improve and you know improve our weaknesses. But actually, focusing on the strengths as well, and actually, can we develop them even further? Um, and just maybe reminding players. I've picked you today because of this. Yeah. I know you can do this. I want you to go out and do this. As opposed to like say you thinking, oh you know, think about your left hand passes and make sure you you know you do some of them right. No, what are your strengths? Go out and do that and focus on that. I'm sure I remember Brian O'Driscoll speaking about him seeing a sports psychologist years ago and he said they went back to kind of what he was good at and what his strengths were. Uh And he said that made a a difference for him. And I'm, I'm, you know, a strong advocate on that. I think there's always a balance, isn't there? And if you speak to a coach, you say, yeah, well, they need to improve this. They're not, you know, we need them to do this. And yes, there is that. But why not as well remind them and spend a bit of time just working on their strengths? Because I think sometimes if if you forget about your strengths and actually you don't continue working on them, they might not become strengths anymore. 100%
1: 100% and yeah that was Enda McNulty Bri- who Brian O'Driscoll saw who I've chatted on the podcast and it's funny like when you think about Brian O'Driscoll and I, like just incredible like whatever but I remember around that time there's a period when he was maybe 29 or 30 and I remember being an Irish fan like people were writing him off like oh he's past it and he was playing poorly he said it himself in the, his book like he was playing quite poorly for a year or 18 months and yeah it's so interesting that was, that was probably the first time I'd heard about sports psychology or this kind of area, but it's, it's, um oh, look, it's a, it's everything in that, like you're saying there about coaches, just what we're talking about now, focusing on the strengths, but another one I've had, it's come up a bit is overconfident. And, you know, that's something then I think maybe people would think, oh, well, you could, you know, you, I don't know people think about that, but I'm not sure, is there such a thing as overconfident? What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I will not call it, oh, well, I think it's false confidence. So what it is, it's when, uh, you know, you so for example, you know, you think that, you know, you can perform a, a specific skill at a, a high level, you know, like a left-hand pass, you think, oh, yeah. I could do a left-hand pass, 30-hour pass, no, no problem. So you come to a match when actually, your ability doesn't. Your confidence doesn't match your ability. You might think you can do that, but really, you know, it might come off one in every ten, and and so that's probably I'd say that's a, a false confidence, uh, where yeah, I, yeah, I think I prefer the term false confidence rather than than overconfidence.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant. I I love that um way you put that, and because when I was playing as well. I uh, towards the end, like just had, and actually earlier-ish on, in my twenties, had this mindset of like you can't beat me. Like I was just like so confident, but but it was within my my role, my small defined role, and it was mainly the lineout. Like our, li- I'm gonna win every lineout. I'm gonna pick some of yours. We're gonna score mall tries. You can't stop me. And we all the team I was in, Lance, and we all had that collective mindset and. I heard it just last week, Zlatan Ibrahimović, just a reel, he was saying like, he was like, I'm God or whatever, but he was like, I never doubt myself. I will, you know, and he said, and I do this as well, but he said, if I'm going to fight Tyson Fury, I'll fully believe I'm going to win. Yeah, of course he will beat me in two seconds, but I'll fully believe I'm going to win. And that's something I think as well. It's like, if you are, I use this, I was doing a talk back home and the analogy I used is, they're like young players really doubt themselves by and large. And I was kind of explaining this, but I, what I said is if one of the hurlers in the school, hurling being a sport in Ireland, challenged me to, uh, you know, puck a few over the bar, I'd fully believe that I'm going to beat him. And I would, like if he said, let's go five each, me and you, I, I could back away and say, no, I'm not going against you. But if I had to, you know, I wouldn't do that anyway, but I would just fully believe I'm going to beat him fully. And yeah. have a crack. I'm, I probably wouldn't, but you know what I mean. I don't see any point in
0: doubting. No, it's interesting that about Zlatan. So it makes you wonder if there's a difference between like what he says publicly and what he genuinely believes. I don't know. Maybe he does believe that if he fought Tyson Fury, he would he would stand the chance. But but surely, and I think for most people, there's probably some there's some doubt in there. It's just whether you would admit to that. That publicly and I also think he's got this you know his reputation of you know I'm Zlatan I'm you know I, I don't know maybe he does have that mindset uh I probably I probably would think that's I'm not sure whether that, how common that mindset would be maybe among you know the very elite of elite athletes who have played their top of their sport maybe they maybe they have that but then I I probably say that's false confidence in the sense that if he think I can understand why he needs to think that he needs to think that he's in you know uh, you know undefeatable and invincible for him to get in there and have that that right mindset yeah I think that's really interesting actually It's probably a big discussion point isn't it that about
1: yeah no he did say to clarify he did say I would I would get beaten quickly or within two seconds he did say that but going in i would fully believe you know it was kind of like like what i said about like if you had to do it like if i had to go against someone in something or if someone challenged me like if someone challenged me in something i'd just go yeah let's go and because you've nothing to lose then
0: um i think you probably got to have that mindset haven't you to a certain extent and it's probably a good mindset to have and if we look at like the theory of challenge and threat states, he's definitely generating a, a challenge state, and we know that with the challenge states, it, it influences your body's physiology. So it increase, uh, dilates the blood vessels, which sends more more blood to the muscles, uh, which allows and facilitates this this strong performance. So, so actually, when yeah, when I think about it that way, what he's doing is this—he's getting into this mindset, and that's something that high-level athletes do—is they create this this challenge state before competing, and the, the benefits of that are both psychological and physiological, which all enhance performance. So it's, yeah, it's a really interesting way of looking at it. And actually, if you think about it, that is the mindset that you want to create when when going into any sport or any stressful situation, whether it be an interview, an exam. You know, you've got to think that you're gonna you're gonna smash it, really.
1: Yeah, and when. It's interesting you mentioned challenge and threat. And yeah, that's the two options you have when you're facing anything really like that. And when you uh, take on that challenge mentality and persona as well, because it's you walk a certain way, you, you carry yourself a certain way, that has an impact on the opposition. It's not only getting yourself psychologically right you are imposing yourself on the opposition. And if they are not mentally strong and dialed in, and I've been there so many times. I went to a school, in the, a smaller school in the middle of Ireland, and I remember sometimes we'd go up and play big Dublin schools and they'd all be wearing the, the same gear and they'd walk, they'd strut out and you'd kind of be thinking, oh, geez. Or I'd I'd be like, I'm going to have a crack here, but I'd be kind of looking at the other guys and you'd get this feeling that they're kind of thinking, oh, no, we're going to lose. And I'd you be know, like,
0: ah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I just read, actually today I read this quote by Robert, Roberto Duran, the boxer. And one thing like to talk about this, he said he could smell fear on his opponents. And uh, whether that's the body language, just the way they are, he could sense it. And, and as soon as he could sense that in any opponent, he knew he'd won and he knew he was going to win. And he subsequently did. And that that's a, a reminder, I think for athletes as well, is to always consider the, the body language that you're portraying and how you're walking around, you don't want to get. And Boris Becker is the same. He used body language as well. He's spoken about that when he was, you know, playing, playing at Wimbledon, playing on the tour. That he was aware of his opponent's body language. He looked to that and he looked to influence their body language by his own body language. Uh, yeah, I think that's really important as well.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And Mike Tyson talked about exactly what you said there as well. Mike Tyson, um there's a video clip about two minutes long, which I really like. I'll um I'll actually put it at the end of this podcast when I'm editing it. But he essentially says like when I'm walking out of the ring, I'm afraid, but I walk towards it. I look at my opponent, I stare at him, don't take my eyes off him. I stare at him. He stares at me, he pretends he's he's confident, he's I stare at him, I don't take my eyes off him. I see him look away, look at the ground, I know I've got him
2: and
0: you know? again he's yeah it's really interesting that's powerful isn't it and it's like his coach Gustav said about using fear uh, positively fear I think it's just like fear is the friend of of the highly skilled in the sense that if you can harness and use the fear use it as an energy use it as a motivation actually it can be really positive fear becomes problematic as an emotion when it gets out of control you can't control it and I mean, it's used in a negative session, in a negative way. But actually Tyson there is showing that everyone experiences fear, even him, but he's using it in a positive way. I think that's so important as well. As, I think that's one thing I've done as, as a psychologist. I, 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 I first learned this or remembered this or kind of yeah learned this when we did a study with an Irish, one of the Irish provinces, uh, so I, I was just doing my PhD at the time and collecting this data. And these players went on, to, all of them went on to become full Irish internationals. One of them was a New Zealand, All Black. And they kept a stress and, uh, stress and coping diary for 28 days, which included, at the time, it was the Heineken Cup. So two European matches, two Celtic League matches. That's how far back it goes, A study. And I wanna, so I got the, the diaries back and I was analysing them. And I was thinking, gosh... You, know, you wouldn't think these stresses and coping would come from that player or that player because you know I'd watched them on TV I you know I'd seen them you think gosh I know that much and he was thinking that around then and that around then it's like I would never have known that and I think it shows that they had this ability to harness that and use that positively or you think oh he didn't look like he was having doubts during that match he looked super positive and super confident and And I kind of learned then that actually, you know, everyone, you know, 99.9% of people experience these stresses and negative emotions, but actually some of these players use it positively and harness it to, to enhance their performance. Uh, And that was a big learning curve, you know, for me as a, as a psychologist.
1: Yeah. So I wonder how would that be that they use that positively? Like, I'm just thinking, is it that they accept it and that they they don't see it as a bad thing and they breathe and they feel it in their body and they move forward anyway?
0: Yeah, so they, they use kind of... This study was going back. We published it in 2005 so it in, or 2006. It's quite an old study. But yeah, how, how they do it, I think they're probably well-practiced in what they do. Uh, and the coping strategies that they would tend to use are quite kind of very task driven. So increasing their concentration is probably one of the most used coping strategies. So if they made a mistake, focusing on what they want to do next, uh, blocking out the, the negative thoughts of of the mistake and and even such as you know, tell themselves that they'll get the next one right. So they're very much they weren't avoiding kind of the next stressful situation. They were confronting it. Whereas when I've done some research with kind of professional players, but lower level players, I remember one player uh, writing that, you know, he'd made a mistake. So his coping response was, it was an inside center, stand in a position. So I can't get the ball. They can't pass to me because he didn't want that ball back again. Whereas the, the Irish players, these super... you know, I call them super, some of them were British Lion, high level players, were always kind of up for the next challenge, sort of thing. They weren't, they didn't hide, and, it, and it, that comes down to the mindset, I think.
1: Yeah, and I was quite
0: surprised, quite surprised by the, you know the player who you know who hid that particular time or stood in a position where he couldn't receive the ball. He was one of the team's better players. He played Premiership rugby. And it also made me real about the ethics of doing research and presenting findings to coaches. Because if you're a coach and you think one of your players admitted to essentially hiding, isn't it? It is a form of hiding on the pitch. You wouldn't kind of be happy about that. Uh, and we didn't obviously you know, let the coach know who that player was. Uh, but I just thought it was just two completely different mindsets and different levels of players.
1: Yeah. And I suppose there's probably a few things that feed into that to help or, you know, it's not a simple thing of flick a switch and if someone's listening, oh, just switch your mindset to the way the Irish player had it. And, you know, I think how comfortable you are in the team and how comfortable and confident you are that the coaches trust you and that you won't be dropped the next game and you're standing within the team you know, if you're the man and you knock on a ball, you'll you'll go and just take the next ball. Whereas if you've just you're getting your debut and you knock on a ball, you'll you'll go and hide. Well, yeah. by and large.
0: Yeah, I think yeah, some players do. I, I wonder as well in terms of what the level of coaching that they've had as well. Had the players been kind of taught any psychological skills, had they seen psychologists in the past, had or was it just this this natural kind of resilience that's that's inbuilt in you know, these high-level players? We know that resilience is a trait element to resilience in the sense that it's a, a relatively stable trait. And whether they just have that, and that that distinguishes or that one of the reasons why they make it at the higher level when physically there might not be that much difference between them and a kind of a club player uh, or a lower level professional and and, and is it that that's the, that distinguishes between them and these these other players that, that I do wonder about that as well i think there's a, a range of factors isn't there potentially
1: hmm. yeah there is and a big one is just people and this is the same in life. People play defensively versus offensively. So people look to protect what they have versus go for what they could be or could achieve.
0: Yeah, I, see, I, I used to play I played junior tennis when I was younger, played as a county champion. And at, at the county level, my game allowed me to be kind of a bit more defensive and let the other players make mistakes. And I would out, just out, outplay them, because sort of they'd make mistakes. And then when you started going to regional, national competitions, that wasn't enough. They wouldn't make mistakes. I had to, to force them into errors and would play winning shots. And I couldn't do that because it wasn't in me. Uh, and that wasn't my game. And, and, it's, and, that, and that's interesting. And that's probably one of the reasons why I got into psychology, really, thinking about the approach, how I should have done. And if, if I was a psychologist working with you know, me or a player like that, you, know, you would have to change the mindset. And some people, it can we can change mindset and we can teach some strategies, but it takes time and, and effort and practice. And but yeah, certainly this defensive versus attacking. And even now, you know, I play golf and I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu now, and that same mindset for me is something that I have to battle with. You know, when I'm I competed at the British Open in Jiu Jitsu last uh, well a couple of times, and I've really had to work on on my mindset. And I think this. Having this defensive kind of play is like it's almost like it's a bit of like fear of losing, fear of making a fool of yourself. Because if it, whereas the attacking play is more, that's the style that's going to help you win, but it comes with more risks potentially. Uh, so yeah, so is it just interesting?
1: Hey, Brian here. I work one-on-one with rugby players, helping them perform better on the field, enjoy it more and maximise their careers. If you feel like there's more in you and don't want to have regrets down the line, head over to offfieldrugby.com now and book a free 30-minute Zoom consultation, and the link is in the show notes. On the call, you talk to me about where you're at now, what you would like to achieve, and I'll show you how I can help you get there. You then go off and decide if you want to invest in yourself and move forward with the one-on-one coaching. For teams, I do mental skills sessions over Zoom. Players will have mindset shifts on the call, but also they'll get exercises to practice going forward. So it's like an S&C program, but for your mental strength. If you're a coach or manager of a team, you can book a free 30-minute Zoom consultation now as well on offfieldrugby.com. If you have any other questions, you can get in touch with me through my social media at Brian Moylet at Offield Rugby or the website offfieldrugby.com. All right, cheers. We'll get back into today's episode. Yeah, it is interesting. And something I think with that is you know the saying, don't die wondering. Mm -hmm. And you know, I've been there as a player and, and early days when I very started coaching at the very start, I remember, and this may be horses for courses, I was in America I was player coach and I was actually then made head coach because the, the head coach got the USA 20s job and we are playing against teams that were just much better than us. And I remember just having a very... I gave them, a. we had like two weeks to play a quarterfinal against a team that were reigning champions and you know, I just implemented a really limited basic game plan that was low risk, like not picking and going the whole way up the field but you know, just limited off nine, retain the ball get in certain areas and you know we were 7-7 with 38 minutes gone and then we knocked the ball on over the line and they went the distance and it was 14-7 at halftime and then it kind of fell apart but you see it as well, you know, in soccer, Mourinho was <clears throat> a big one who, you know, would go one nil up and then park the bus, and it would work for him at times, so I suppose it's not, and I'm very attacking-oriented now, like I am, you know, when I coach, it's like, let's see what possibility there is, and we're going for every, squeeze every little bit of possibility out of every single player in the team as a collective, and, you know, shoot for the stars, but yeah, I suppose there is um, at times benefit to defending.
0: Yeah, there is, but but I think it's about having the mindset which will allow you to, to attack if you need to and defend if you need to, as opposed to just falling back on this defensive kind of negative outlook. Which I, I you know, I sometimes think when I reflect, it's a personality thing. That is, it cer- is it harder for certain people to do this? And if it is, then that's as a coach. You really need to encourage those players, identify those players who maybe struggle with this with that concept and actually support them. You know. If you drop the ball, it doesn't matter. Just go for it. I'd rather you drop the ball going for it than playing a defensive negative style. And and it's the coach who sets that tone. And yeah, perhaps if I played for coaches who were who are more like that, then actually, you know, you it might have brought that out in me a little bit more. Uh Yeah. And I love
1: what you say there. And, you know, that's kind of what I've naturally, I naturally did in my coaching because I started to, I saw it in myself. Like there were times when I'd be playing and I'd be playing defensively because I didn't want to get dropped. I didn't want to make mistakes. And I know it, like I've, I've been there and I've been on the other side as well. And so like, I just have, obviously have an awareness of what players feel and think and go through. And I kind of, said that or started to say that because there is nothing more frustrating if you're a coach and you're in tune and you're watching you can see when guys are playing cautiously and conservatively and it's yeah it's just no good it's no good you don't get the knock-ons but like if they're just running back towards the rock and they're just you know
0: slowing down into contact and you know it's just no good and it's also you can see like from a body language perspective you can see this like rigidity in them they're just a bit tense and a bit tight and actually, by thinking you're trying to enhance your performance by doing that, actually you're probably making it harder to pass because you're not you don't have the relaxation and the freeness to to make the movements that you can do and that can often you know can sometimes lead to choking as well when you become preoccupied with your movements, your movements are tense and you're thinking about the movements whereas when you're attacking and you're free you you just, you just do it don't you you know the passes become easier to do and and I think that's you know as, as i spoke about as a, from a coaching perspective, it's really about encouraging that that mindset. I think to get the best out of players and removing yeah. the if the fear. You know, you do talk about you know Mourinho is a good one. He did. He always used to say about I'm trying to remove the fear from my players. I'm you know putting it on me, and so they don't have that that fear. Uh, and and I think that can be quite important as a coach. But just you know, when you think about as well, supporting your players, you know, letting them know that this is the game plan, this is what we want to do. And, you know, if it doesn't work, so be it. But like I say, you don't die wondering. Yeah. And you have to, when you mention the rigidity
1: there, like I know exactly what you're saying and anyone who's played sport will know exactly what you're saying. Like it's, it's literal. The muscles literally tense up and you literally get rigid. And you have to have the courage to just step into the unknown and, and live in the unknown simple as, and I know that becomes very difficult when you have coaches who are shouting at you when you knock the ball on or when you make
0: a mistake, that's probably the biggest impediment is that. Yeah. And and I think the coach is kind of doing themselves a disservice because actually what they don't want to happen is what they're actually making happen or potentially encouraging that by, you know, shouting about mistakes made or, yeah, and I think that's sometimes where coach awareness is is quite important, like coaching being aware of their behaviours and, and how they influence the mindset of their, of their players. Because sometimes I don't think, some coaches are certainly not aware of it. They just think, well, I was shouted at as a kid, didn't do many harm, so I need him to, you know, and also as well, if I'm a coach and I'm under pressure, you know, I might take it out on the players, which, again, you don't want to happen, but you know, we're all human, aren't we? So it, and, it, and it can happen. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Um, chat to
1: me about your jiu-jitsu journey.
0: Yeah, so I've been, so I've been training jiu-jitsu now for six years, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, and, and I've competed a couple of times at the British Open as a, as a Masters athlete. So I got uh, a silver See, in jiu-jitsu, you compete wearing a, a gi, so a kimono, or you can compete wearing like just t-shirts and shorts, which is classed as no gi. So they're both quite quite different sports, in a sense, when you're competing with t-shirts and shorts, it's a much faster faster kind of sport, there's no grips, whereas with a gi, you can grip up. And, yeah, so I've competed uh, so twice at the British Open, in both gi and, and no gi, and, and I've you know, competed other times as well. And, from a psychological perspective, I think it's really good as a psychologist you're actively doing something uh, so I can test out you know what I recommend in terms of coping strategies and also you get to feel you get to feel that adrenaline the emotions and you try and generate the challenge things what works well how does that relate to the literature what could be done better um yeah you know, and I'd say it's kind of a battle to kind of leave. Kind of what I've done in the past, so, so I think in, when I played sports, generally, like kind of quite good at sports without being really good. But I think one thing that's always kind of held me back is probably my my mentality and not being free and not just going for things. And and I'm you know I'm making a conscious effort to do that in, in jujitsu, and it is hard, but I think it's. But I'm certainly getting better at generating these those these challenge states. Uh, and focusing on what I want to happen and, and yeah. who cares if it, if it doesn't come off today, but I'm going to at least go for it. And yeah, and I'd say it's one of the best things I've ever done, jujitsu, uh, in terms of just as a stress reliever for mental health. It's just, it's amazing. Because you can't, if you've got a 90 kilogram man trying to choke you out and sit on you and squash you, you can't be thinking about, oh God, have I done this right with work? Oh, have I had an argument with the missus? All, all those things. They're not there for that hour, I and mean, it's just—it's amazing. Class, yeah. Yeah, I'm intrigued with it,
1: and I'm very keen. I'd love to start it. I did a session, one jujitsu session once about three years ago with a friend of mine, and I had to stop playing rugby because of concussion, and that's. I'm actually getting back, I'm feeling just in the last even week, it's just such a long process. You get to like 95%, 96%, 94% and you just linger in little minor, little migraines and neck strains and stuff. But I'm just really starting to feel 100% again. And how, what would you think? Like how physical is it? Or do you
0: ever get dropped on your head or? Yeah, from a, a concussion perspective, no. Uh, I think in because Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, if you think of wrestling, as in not like WWE wrestling, but Olympic freestyle wrestling. Yeah. So there's an element of that to Jiu-Jitsu, and there is there is a concussion rate in uh, in wrestling, but actually in Jiu-Jitsu, it's very, very rare. Uh, people do double, double leg takedowns, but you're not often lifted up, and a lot of it mm-hmm. is like kind of ground fighting. Um You know, when I've trained in different gyms, there are a lot of rugby players, and rugby players seem to take really well to jujitsu because they're used to the contact. Obviously, the tackling element is like a double leg takedown. I think it works really, really well with rugby players, and I think I think there's very, very minimal risks in terms of concussions. There are obviously other injuries like your joints, knees, elbows. uh, No, not with. I'll probably go and get a concussion now when I'm training tomorrow, won't I? But I. uh... I think no, I I I think the risk of that is you know very very minimal. I think the only way, if you go and do a double, I've seen one person have a concussion where they went for a double leg takedown, essentially like a tackle, and they got their head caught on the person's hip, bumped their oh, head yeah. on, uh, which, but I think, like anything, it's like tackling. If you get your technique right, then nine times out of ten you'll be fine. But they're always always. But you've got you don't have you know people charging in at you like you're doing rugby, you know, where you get a stray knee from somebody. Uh, so yeah, and I think it's a good sport for ex rugby players who maybe have some you know mobility issues and yeah, yeah. I so recommend it.
1: Yeah, and you're not carrying ball hard into three men who are hitting yeah. you high and yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're not going to get an elbow in the face. Put it that way.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, it's good. I think I will I I think I will get into it. Yeah, and it
0: probably actually would
1: strengthen my neck in that when you're in, you know, when you're in and you're kind
0: of using, putting your head, you know, it would. Yeah, and, and also you mentioned as well about in our, the lab, last podcast about, you know, you play rugby, for, you know, and you get your friends through rugby. Actually, you know, you get some of your greatest friends through jiu-jitsu because when, you're, when you've rolled with someone or sparred with somebody where you're both giving it absolutely everything, and, you, you know, you finish, you shake hands. There's kind of like a bond there between you that you don't, you know, necessarily have with someone you just, you know, you meet walking down the street. So you're both giving it absolutely everything. And I think that leads to, well, they say it produces oxytocin. And I think that, you know, makes, you know, friend hormone, isn't it? And, and it, is, it is true that, you know, you develop like really good friendships with all the people you've rolled with. and uh, yeah, There's a respect there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like rugby and it's uh yeah,
1: and it's probably that contact. Yeah, I know it's exactly the same thing. It's a contact sport where you give it everything you've got and you let, lay it all out there and it's there's just that mutual real mutual respect and and bond even with players you play against
0: and with obviously. Yeah. Yeah, and I I found that and that, yeah, it's without that risk of the impact injuries. So yeah. Yeah, I I would think I will start. it. And what is your training regime like, or how how often do you train? Yeah, so I train, uh, so I, I live in York in the UK, and there is a club that's, you know, 10 minutes away from my house, but it's, you know, it's not very good. So I travel. So my gym's about sort of 45, 50 minutes away. So typically once, definitely once a week, and then I do an hour and a half session, and then if I've got a competition up twice a week, I think I'm, you know, I'm forty four now, so there's definitely a balance between getting enough training in, but not too much training and picking up, you know, niggly injuries. Uh, but I certainly do. I do other training at home, so hill runs, hit training, uh, yeah, and and most I don't actually do any weights because I'm trying to keep my body weight down, so you can compete at a lower. A lower a weight category uh, so yeah but it, it, it's enough I think if you do get you know there is wear and tear when people try to put arm bars on you and you know over over hyper extending your elbow joints and, and knee joints and ankle joints uh so there is definitely a, a, a balance and I think I've got it about right yeah yeah I once hyper extended my elbow playing when I was like 20
1: Two or one and it is
0: niggly. Oh, yeah. it feels awful. It does. It does. And especially if you're if you're rolling with somebody who's really out to get you and they you know they put the armbar on too much or or when you tap, uh they don't release. Like so when I was at the British Open last year, I got uh, the guy choked me and I was like tapping. It's like, yeah. still not letting go. So I'm tapping again, it's still not letting go. The ceiling's going a bit blue at this point. I'm like, tapping him again, and, uh, yeah, eventually he let go, and I was just, just still conscious just, but, yeah. Jesus, that's getting close to getting a punch. Yeah, oh, yeah, it was, I wasn't happy afterwards, yeah, so not only did I lost, he'd, like, yeah, uh, (laughs) so not happy at all after that, yeah, he apologised, I think it was just, it was the adrenaline, because it was a tough, you know, it was a tough scrap, we were both, you know, going for it 100%, and. One of those things that could have gone either way, but fortunately for me, I came out on the wrong end. But yeah, just the adrenaline. You don't have that in training, you see. When you're training, you're training generally with your mates, people. You know, it's like for rugby, you're playing with your mates, you're training with your mates. You don't have that that edge which you get when you're competing. And it's the competing, I think, that reveals any shortcomings in your game, what your strengths are, what you need to work on from both a technical and a psychological perspective. I think that's why for me competing is so important. And it's like, as I say, trying to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that that takes time and practice and and regularly regularly competing. For sure. Yeah. And it is exactly
1: that the same in rugby and I suppose back in the day when I was growing up, like they, you'd be competing all the time. Like they'd be, you know, twenties be playing against the seniors, and but just wear and tear, like with the body, you can't do it. It's just not smart to be doing that anymore. Um, but and it's hard, yeah, because it's it's hard as well to get yourself to that pitch, that level that you need to be at. You can't be getting yourself to that three times a week, or like it's just
0: hard, impossible. You know? And also I think again, looking at burnout and recovery, and that's one thing when in some of the studies I've done with university rugby players who are kind of first team, first team fringe players but also play for the university or the A team, you know you'll see that they're, you know, they're benched for the first team on a Saturday, but because they've only played 20 minutes or half an hour, they then still have to play for the reserves on a mon- It was a Monday night traditionally. And, and that takes its toll from both the physical and the psychological perspective, you know, trying to get yourself up for two matches. And then we, having bench for the first team only, only but playing reserve team, it's like, oh, am I up for this as I was on Saturday? And that's when there's potential risk for injury if they're not quite up for it. And as a coach, as a psychologist, it's, you know, supporting those players with, with that. And I think that is, that is difficult. When you're at that, when you talk about, you know, if you're an under-20 player or an academy player where you're, you know, you playing kind of across two teams, it's it's tough, I think. Just something that needs to be managed from a burnout perspective.
1: Yeah, I think it's borderline impossible. Like, I, once in my life, I did it and it was... Like when I was in Ireland, you know, I was playing at the first team. But then I remember once I had told him I was leaving, and I was I was leaving. And then the very last weekend, I play. I was on. They put me on the bench. Um, I think James Ryan got my place. He was his first uh, his first uh, senior game, and I was probably leaving at the right time then because he came into the team. And I remember I told Mike, and he's like, "Oh, okay." And I played the game. But then the very last game, I was I was dropped essentially. But yeah, I did it, and it's impossible. It's Saturday, Sunday, like it's you just have no energy. Like I remember playing that J one game. It's just like oh, and it's it's just hard because then you have other guys that are fizzing for it because it's their big game, and it's just hard.
0: And that's and that's I think something that needs to be you know looked at and, and monitored really from a player welfare bee, welfare sense. I think it goes on as well with university players who are expected to play for the university and the club as well. So it's just something that I don't know how, how well it's monitored now whether things have changed but it's just something that you know needs to be looked at really.
1: Mm. And it's something yeah, from the coach's point of view just to, like coaches I think sometimes as well just see players as numbers and yeah. oh well he can play 20 minutes then 60 tomorrow and well, you're not thinking about the person like you know and it's if you were you know even for your first team if you're if the guys are aware that they're gonna to have to play on a sunday it's on your mind and people hate doing it and so you know i've thought about that before and for me you know coaching if and when it comes up i i think i talk to the player and say like look do you want to play tomorrow or not or you know there's no pressure like just go hard for the 20 you get here and if you want to play tomorrow, you make that choice, but I'm not making it. And then yeah. obviously the second team coach would be like, come on, he has to play. And it's like, no.
0: <laughs> yeah, It is difficult, isn't it? And you think from a coach, if you need, you know, those play- if you need a particular player to first team and then you're short for, it's is difficult, isn't it? But like you say, if, if your, big, your, your big match of the weekend is a bench on the first team, how's your mindset going in for a second team? Are you really are that interested? Are you up for it? And if you're not, then it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. And another thing we chatted about um, the last day was
1: how you understood for, through doing your research with Super League teams, the importance of the leader's well-being, like the manager, the coach's well-being and the impact on that.
0: On, on the players with that? Yeah, just, yeah, if you think about like lots of clubs now, they have, certainly Super League, they will have wellbeing managers and who look after the players. But who is looking after the, the coaches? You know, quite often they work long hours, maybe don't see their family. So, uh, you know, their wellbeing could be lowered. And what impact does that have on, you know, on the players? If, you know, if you're going in struggling, do you take that out on the players? Are you at your best from a coaching, coaching start, uh, perspective? If you're not kind of at your best from a kind of a mental health perspective, and I and I just think that's something that, that sports clubs can be or should be a bit more aware of. Who is you know who is supporting the person who supports the the players, and I think sometimes that can get overlooked really. And maybe also with the you know the leaders, there's a, a resistance or a, yeah, not to kind of seek help. You know they're you know they're the they're the leader of the club. Do they see that as a weakness if they then go and seek help from you know from somebody? But I think it is important you know to, for for the coaches to to have some support and certainly be monitored anyway. Just you know just check on in on. it.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that mindset or you mentioned about would it be seen as weakness and that's I suppose you've probably correct me if I'm wrong but seeing that a hundred times with psychologists and with like just when I was growing up it was always like oh you you don't need that you know or don't uh, you know you have to pretend you're hard and you can never let on and and then once again that's wider society also it's like people see getting help for something as a weakness maybe it's more of a man male thing as well like oh I'll just I can just push on
0: yeah I think yeah there's, there's some research that came out recently with uh, with elite athletes and one of the biggest things that prevented them from seeking help was the stigma associated with receiving support as a you know for, for mental health issues and this was particularly with elite athletes and one of the reasons cited was because they didn't want uh, the coach to be wet to know that they were seeking help and also that they see it as a weakness, and it's not part of this. I'm a winner, a winner mentality, uh, and that's something that needs to change. Kind of the mindset around seeking help, and not and it not being about a, a winner's mentality is not you know not about seeking help when you need it or not seeking help when you need it. It's about doing everything you can to support yourself, and your own mental well being, and actually, in some cases, that may be seeking help through it a you know, clinical psychiatrist a uh, clinical psychologist a psychiatrist or a doctor and actually it's about changing the the view of of that because there's lots of uh, mental health symptoms in elite athletes when we we did a study with super league players and we our sample was the 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 the, so the symptoms of depression and anxiety were higher among those players than they would be of the general public in the UK and actually our, our findings are probably underestimated the prevalence of mental health symptoms of anxiety and depression in the sample because we, we presented our findings to Sporting uh, no, Sport Chance, which is a mental health charity, and, and they knew the samples of players that we'd recruited and actually they said you know, from their work that potentially other clubs who have high levels of mental health symptoms who didn't participate in that study. Or we might have had say five players from one club when they were a club that so, so the prevalence of mental health symptoms among athletes, elite athletes, is high. And I and I think it's it's important that this that stigma around you know seeking help is you know is banished really. Absolutely. And so what you're saying there, just
1: to put it in my head or get it right in my head is Professional rugby league players in the Super League, by and large, statistically, are more depressed and more anxious
0: than your regular person walking on the street? Yeah. If you had a hundred Super League players and a hundred people walking on the street, males of the same age, there'd be higher levels of depression and anxiety among the Super League players and lower levels of well being than there would be on the hundred the average hundred male, you know, eighteen to thirty five year old males. Yeah, and yeah, we touched on
1: this the last time and I gave the example in how I saw this. So I remember when I was with the Ireland under-19s, we were playing England and there was 25 players in the camp and they said to us, there's 23 going to dress, obviously. And the two players will be let know halfway through the week or something and then you'll go home. And I was one of the two players. And I remember thinking... I just want to get back to my flat in the university, get 24 cans of beer, a slab of beer on the way, get back to my flat. It was during the holidays. No one else would be there. And that I could just close the door and drink every drop of that slab of beer. And that's all I was thinking. And whereas my friends who were at home for the university holidays, like they would just been chilling, hanging out, loving life, whereas I was like literally in the depths.
0: Yeah, it's difficult. I think a lot of issues. yeah, selection, it's like the highs and lows, isn't it? Of, you know, if you'd have been picked for that match, even if you'd have been on the bench, you'd have you know, probably had a different mindset. Yeah. One of the things look at Super League players, it's an you know, uncertainty of contracts there. You, know, you know, generally, the average player is probably a two year contract at max. And then, you know, they're one injury away from, you know, having their income you know, gone, really, you know, receiving a payout and. And particularly, I think, in a sport like Rugby League, where if you compare it to Rugby Union, and, and certainly in England, it's more of a kind of a working-class sport. Probably not as many players have been to university, so maybe not as much of a career to fall back on. Uh, and, and potentially their, their Super League income might be the highest income they'll, they'll ever have. Not for all players, but for some players. So there's this uncertainty of that. You know, if you've got a mortgage, family going from one contract to the next it, 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 it leads to uncertainty and then you add on top of that it's you know uncertainty of performance whether you're going to get pits uh, crowd reactions making mistakes so it's kind of a lot of different things for the players to contend with really and that over time must have an impact on you know their mental health yeah
1: <clears throat> and I I'm now, like I'm coaching in Christchurch and what would be, I've just got a new role with a head coach of a a club here and what would be something that obviously I'm very aware of and want to help the players with. What would be, would you have any ideas or thoughts on something? So I'm head coach, Div one team, like the average age, probably 19 to 25, 26, uh, 20 to 26, that kind of age. And what would be some things like, you know, if we meet Tuesday, Thursday, play Saturday. What would be some things that you would think I could do to help those
0: players? Yeah, I think it goes back to this, you know, this fulfilling their basic psychological needs. So uh, there are three of those. So competence, so make them feel competent at what they do. You know, make them feel, you know, show them that, you know, you're happy with their performance. The way, you know, so again, going back to these strengths, what are their strengths? Focusing on the strengths, uh, uh, relatedness, make them feel cared for. There's a great, uh, a great video just recently posted by Tom Brady, the uh, NFL quarterback, as, as a leader. And, and one thing that he thinks is the most important factor of leadership from a coach or a captain is about caring for your, for your players. Let them know you care for them. Show an interest in what they do. Get to know them as, 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 as the people. And, uh, and also give them autonomy. Give them a, a say in what they do in training. Speak to them about what did you think went well in this game? What do you think we need to work on? Uh, so in training, only ideas on how we could instill this in a match. So you, you're giving them a sense of control over what they do you know I'm a real big fan of from a coaching perspective of these fulfilling the basic psychological needs of of all athletes I think it it helps in their well-being it helps uh, in their motivation it gives them more of an intrinsic motivation and all those factors will you know we're not performance is the end goal but actually if they're feeling better about themselves feeling cared for they will play better and they'll enjoy it more and have less anxiety which is what we want to achieve that's kind of how, one thing I'd probably recommend work, particularly working with those younger players and kind of what we've also discussed today about you know, instilling in them the mentality to go for it and not to be concerned about mistakes and praising people when they take on a, a risky play because if that's what you want as a team, an attacking play, regardless of the outcome. The outcome shouldn't matter, it's more about the mindset that you're kind of praising. Yeah, brilliant,
1: cheers and Something, one of my biggest frustrations growing up was how many of my teammates and coaches looked at outcomes and it is just so fucking stupid and I, I knew very early how stupid it was and how stupid they were for doing it and I it used to frustrate the hell out of me. Like, you know, I would make a mistake and they would say, rah, rah, rah. I would not make a mistake and be successful and they wouldn't say anything. No understanding of what I was doing in a certain, you know, like give an off- do a quote unquote risky play. And if it were unsuccessful, there's issues. If it were successful, no issues. And it's like, oh my word, like, you know, it's just so
0: frustrating. <laughs> I think yeah, from a coaching perspective, it's giving the players clarity over how you want to play, what your what your team stands for. So then, when your players take on, you know, those types of plays, whatever it may be, you know, offering support and praise, you know, regardless of the outcome, like you know, you've dropped the ball, don't you? You don't need the coach shouting that you know you've done that. That just compounds yeah. it and it increases the rigidity about oh. Do I get the ball next? Oh, I don't want the ball. You know, in the next five seconds or ten seconds or next play, because I might, you know, I'm worried I'll do it again and they'll shout at me again. And it's just not, you know, I see it. You know, my little boy plays under eights, under nines football, and I see it every single week. That rigidity among the under nines is, you know, it's like this. It's like they almost have this like kind of like paralysis of oh, I'm scared. You know, I just made a mistake. The other week, one boy was crying; and he wanted to come off. His, his dad, the coach, wouldn't let him come off. He wanted him to stay on and. I just think it's just it all contributes to that, and it's just you know so wrong, so wrong. It's not helping, is it? Uh, you know, you know you've made a mistake. He, you know, people know we've made a mistake. We we need support and encouragement, and I think also it's about setting the tone for your teammates as well. You know, you don't want the team. I don't. I personally don't like it when teammates berate in other players. I don't think that has a function. I think it. It should be supporting the team. It's encouraging them. 100%. 100%. Yeah. You hear some coaches saying, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter that. I don't mind a bit of that. I think there's probably times and places, certainly during a competition, during a match, that's not the time for that. The time then is to support your players, help them get through sticky situations, get the best out of them.
1: Yeah, I see what you mean, yeah, like, there could be a time in a match, late in a match, where that gives you a lot of, where someone, if they berate you or dress you down, it gives you so much emotion that you could potentially channel that emotion positively at your next job, but it would give you a very short burst, and I'm just, I'm just, playing devil's advocate because I would not ever be encouraging my players to ever braid each other. I'm just thinking if there were
0: a time, but yeah. Yeah, and I suppose maybe the odd player might actually benefit from that. Or, for example, if you're a front row player, a player in the scrum, actually getting them angry before they're about to push push for their life actually you know, might help. But what my biggest concern is about it is it causes resentment. It causes kind of disharmony between teammates it's like oh god he doesn't like me now or why do I want to play for him why you know know. and uh, that's I see it under nines all the time they're all having a go at each other and I I hate that I absolutely hate that And but that comes from the coaches if the coaches are shouting at the players and having a go at them then of course the players are probably going to mirror that behaviour and do the same thing and yeah, I I don't like that at all. From a you know from a psychological perspective.
1: Yeah, it's the players always mimic the leader, the coach. Well, to an extent, always. Yeah, They're great. Well, I learned this when uh, Phil Jackson said it in The Last dance how so Dennis Rodman was obviously eccentric and all over the place. But if Phil was losing his shit on the sideline, Dennis would lose his shit on the court. So Phil understood that his demeanour had to be calm and collected and Dennis would, uh, and the rest of the players. And that's so true. And it's like the best one in rugby is, um, lads, no shouting at the ref today. And then the coach is screaming at the ref.
0: <laughs> it's just, yeah. And, and for Phil Jackson there, also it shows his emotional intelligence because he knows how, he, how he's behaved and how he is, has an impact on his players, but particularly that, you know, Dennis Robin in particular. And and I think again, coaches. This is why I think coaches do need support because if they're struggling with other things and they don't have any support, it gets to the match situation where they just they can take it out on their players, and it's just, I, I just yeah. It, I think they need this awareness and support, you know, and other strategies that they can have so they don't they don't do that. Yeah, for sure,
1: for sure. Yeah, like well. And the thing as well is they're performing also like on a match day, you're performing as a coach and in a different way. like, we're talking about body language. Like there's many different things. Like you need to instill confidence in your players. You need to have strong body language. You, you, you need to believe like if a coach is doubting the players can pick up, the players can pick up on everything, everything. So like the coach You know, even if you have a tough game, you need to believe. And it's like going back to what I was saying earlier. It's like you can choose to doubt or believe, but like when you rock up on a Saturday, there's no point in you being like, "Oh, I don't know about this today," or even giving off that energy at all.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and it's about having the confidence in your plan and and demonstrating that to the players. Because if you know if you're on the the sideline, whatever sport you're playing, your shoulders are hunched, or a player makes. and the, the players see you doing that, it's just, it's no, no use, is it? I don't think so. Yeah. And I think, again, this, this goes back to this coach awareness as well. I think that's so important.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Something a bit of a, a common theme, but I chatted to two neurodiversity people on the podcast and they haven't been released yet, but they've released, when this one was released And I became interested in it like uh, a couple of years ago, hearing a podcaster who essentially was talking about his diagnosis in his thirties. And I believe from listening to him, and then definitely after chatting to those two people, that I have ADHD or neurodivergent. And I saw on your LinkedIn bio that you put it put down dyslexic, and then it was just reminded we just when Dennis Robin came up, and he's you know so like there's probably a million different neurodiversity as a heading there's probably a million different labels or ways or you know whatever and he's definitely one but um yeah chat me about uh, i suppose uh your
0: dyslexia and yeah so so my dyslexia was not picked up at school uh and all that happened is so as a university lecturer you know you're working with young people and uh, you know they they'll fill out a form that says you know you have to take into account their dyslexia when you're marking their assignments or or they'll tell you they'll tell me their dyslexia and you say oh what what how does that work you know what does that mean and you find out more and more about it you start speaking to more and more people who are dyslexic you think oh god oh yeah I can relate to that I can relate to that I could relate to everything that these 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 dyslexic students were saying to me and then. Uh, we received an email from the university saying from occupational health saying they're doing full screening assessments so at the time I was 38 I just got my professorship and I my my boy my youngest my oldest son actually was five years old at the time and I just thought I should find out really because it'll you know to understand more about it and if I am I know that there'll be a 50% chance that he'll have dyslexia and so I thought oh yeah I'll get the test done and yeah I was highly dyslexic and and everything that i and, and it's made such a difference in terms of the strategies that i've been taught uh to manage it and you know i wish i'd known them when i was you know, at school you know i struggled at school uh, you know kind of the writing side of things and understanding things and i think yeah it's so important i think if, if people are neurodivergent is to kind of get it assessed and diagnosed because of the support you receive there's so many good strategies out there for all different different types of neurodiversity uh, and my son's autistic so he's he's three years old and he's just been diagnosed with autism and and now the support he's getting you know to help in the speech and I think it's so important that we we embrace our neurodiversity because actually you know I, I firmly believe that these although some of the traits we may have, if ADHD, dyslexia, or autism, are uh, kind of not problematic, but they're maybe not yeah, problematic or they may not help us in some areas, but actually it's about harnessing that strength and using it and in a in a positive way. And we can do that. I'm you know, I'm a firm believer in that. It's just, I just don't think sometimes society is set up to to embrace the differences that, that we that we have, uh, you know, I think from a from dyslexia, I think from my perspective, I, I think I look at things differently, and and the way in which I have to read for me to read things and to understand them, it takes a bit more time. But that time and allows me to reflect on things. So, yeah, I, I just think that school school settings did not help me at all, and I think that's why being a researcher. Helps me. I'm not good at answering the questions that other people set, but I'm actually good at creating my own questions and then answering them through research. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm so glad I got the diagnosis and I, I've under, I understand a lot more about what dyslexia is and why I may struggle in some areas, but actually it can help me in many others. Like yeah. one of them is the memory. I think people with dyslexia think, oh yeah, you write threes like an E, or you write threes backward. Actually it's a lot more than that. For his short term memory among dyslexic people is really poor. And, uh, and I remember years ago I went to vote in the general election. And I'm like, right, there's two two votes going on. It's not rock it's not hard, but you needed to use two different slips of paper, a green one and a white one for each different thing. So the woman's at the polling stations tell me this, I'm like, what the fuck is she saying here? I don't I can't remember that. So I copy, I follow this little old lady and copy off what she's done. And, and that is, I didn't know I was dyslexic at that point, but it's just the short-term memory it goes. So I struggle at interviews because of, you know, people ask you a question that's like a three-part question in one. i like, what the? Fuck? I can't remember the first part, let alone part two and three. So now yeah. as dyslexia, someone who's dyslexic, you know, you're allowed to, take a, a notepad and pen in and, I, and I'll write the question down and I write it down and, and I remember it. So again, it's just one of those strategies uh, that makes a big difference.
1: Yeah. And it, it's funny, that it'll be out before you, but the po- the second podcast on neurodiversity I did this morning, I'm talking to you this evening. And that's we, we spoke a lot about the strengths and how and I was just speaking of my experiences and it's funny you were saying like oh that's me that's me that's me it's funny on the podcast you were saying people when they're in school like this 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 and I'm like oh yeah that's me 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 and <laughs> so something and I, I'll ask you a question now but I will I see it since once again I haven't been diagnosed but listening to this other podcaster uh, blind boy in Ireland and hearing him and just his experience in school got me Thinking, yeah, and then talk, talking to these two experts, I was like, yeah, definitely. But I see it as I certainly have to manage it, and my my concentration isn't as good. But like, I can't sit at a desk for eight hours doing something I don't want to do. But if I do love it, I can go all in on it. So I suppose what I'm asking is, what are some of the strengths you find in dyslexia?
0: Yeah, so when so when I first got diagnosed with dyslexia at thirty eight, I was like, oh. yeah, I kind of knew it, but even still, you're still a bit. And then I remember the woman telling me she was lovely that we did my assessment. She was like, you know, we think about things, di- or you think about things differently. She said, uh, when one of the NASA ships went, there was a problem. No one could solve it, and the, the two dyslexic engineers solved that because they think about they think about things differently. I don't know, I guess I think about, I probably think things more literal. Uh, and then when you think about things literal, you, when other people are maybe thinking about, I'm talking more research and actually working with people. Sometimes you just see it, uh, I think you just see it, you see situations differently to other people. So when I, if, you know, if, if, if I've been set a question by a teacher and, and I, I see it differently, I see that question differently to everyone else in the class. So my answer will be different and my answer will probably be perceived to be wrong. Uh, But when you're working with people, I think that's a a big strength in the sense that you kind of you might bring a different solution to a situation which someone else might not bring. Uh, And and I'd say that's that's probably a a strength. Uh, I also think you have empathy as well with others because you've you know I've struggled, I struggled through school and I've kind of got where I have through. I guess it's like kind of bloody sheer mindedness and, and. you know, Even when you, know, you don't do that well in your degree or even my master's, I didn't do that well. But I still had this belief that I could still go and do a PhD and I've done that. So you have this, you know, I think it gives you a belief in people as well or allows not to doubt people. Yeah, I think there's, it's hard to, to really kind of describe it, but I, I definitely think it, it, it does, it helps me think of solutions differently, I'd say. Things differently. Yeah,
1: I know exactly what you mean. I know what you mean in seeing things differently, and I know what you mean in not being able to describe it. And once again, I haven't been diagnosed, and I don't think I'm definitely don't think I'm dyslexic. Um, I'm not, but yeah, I I reckon just chatting these, it's ADHD. But uh, yeah, seeing things differently, and my whole the whole time in school, I would either be told, "Oh, Brian, that doesn't matter. It's not on the syllabus." or I'd be told, stop, you know, like, they'd think that I was, like, just being difficult for the sake of it, like, we'd be in class, and I'd, I mightn't have much interest, but I'd ask a question, just looking at something from a a very different angle, and their mind just couldn't, it was just like, what, like, like, you know, and I had one teacher, my business and economics teacher, who was class, and I loved him, and those were my favourite subjects, and we would be talking about economics, and I'd ask a question then about like society, and he'd then go off and we'd chat. And I don't know, was he neurodivergent? But like you know, he'd he like fully embraced that kind of way of like just
0: thinking and just being. It's I don't know, outside the box. Bigger yeah, bigger picture thinking. Is, you know, often you know referred to outside the box, but it's it's a bigger picture conceptual thinking. And I, I think I have that as well. You're thinking, how does that like you were saying, how does that relate to that? even though it's not this is a society issue but what what impact does that have over over there and I kind of think like that as well and that's that's yeah I think that's definitely because I think if I think sometimes like we can you can get a bit distracted you say you're in a class not distracted but you're actually an overthinker and then you're thinking a bit more broadly than the, than the narrowness uh, yeah I think that yeah that definitely helps it definitely helps I think in my job. I think the the difficulty is is, you know, as a, a researcher writing papers and books, sometimes I struggle to to kind of get down on paper what I what I really want, or or I'll, I'll write something, I think yeah it's not right, is that, but I can't express it any other way. I know it's not right, or it's not as good as it could be. Uh, and sometimes you then come back and you think about it, and then you you sort it. But you know, I think often I'm frustrated with what I've written. Uh, because it's not or less so now than I used to be because I think with time and practice you get you get better at, at doing that but yeah no
1: it's cool um, well hey cheers for your time been unreal chatting uh, again and I suppose last one is anything you're doing at the moment or what are you up to at the moment or the last six months research wise work wise sports psychology wise anything we haven't talked about
0: yeah so at the moment i'm i'm working on kind of research grant applications uh so looking at more into kind of anti-doping so looking at developing uh, anti-doping education and understanding why certain people will use performance enhancing drugs why others don't and then how we can help reduce the prevalence of of drugs in in sport, I guess, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm quite fascinated by this. Just see, and it's interesting. I, you know, I, I you know, I trained Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and I probably say, well, there's no drug testing in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. A lot at the top end, a lot of the athletes are openly on, <laughs> openly on steroids and testosterone. Oh yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, and I, and I think probably in some ways that motivates me to do the research that I'm doing. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy that. Yeah, definitely.
1: Cool, well that um, uh, that's another podcast down the line sometime. I'm definitely interested in that too because I coached a player who, after I finished coaching not that it would make a difference, but a year or two later he tested positive and got banned and um, I know his background, he comes from a very he came, he had told me came from a very um, low income background, you know and uh, I yeah, the pressure is that he must have been under, but um
0: anyway that's uh yeah that will be another podcast absolutely cheers All Right, cheers Embraer. thank you
1: cheers for listening into the pod today if you're new to the pod welcome be sure to check out some earlier episodes and subscribe wherever you're listening so that you get the new episodes when they're released In my mid-twenties, I began studying the mind and that led me to playing the best rugby in my life and enjoying it so much all the time, like regardless of results. Whereas when I was younger, there were highs and lows and it felt uncertain, like I was on a roller coaster. But then when I began developing and harnessing my mind, it felt like I'd absolutely cracked the code. Now I work one-on-one with players and yes, I help you overcome challenges and we do mental skills work so that you can consistently perform at your peak. But I also help you expand your mind and grow as a person. You know the way you often feel like you have more in you, you have more to express, you have more to bring and it kind of gets frustrating when yes, you're getting some results. We know you have more inside you. i help you bring that out. Every single player that I've worked with 101 for over 12 months has made a team that they didn't think they could make in that time and or signed a new increase contract that way more than covered the investment that they made in themselves for the 101 coaching. If you're a player or coach and would like to learn more, head over to offfieldrugby.com now and book your free 30-minute Zoom consultation with me. Through this podcast, I want to help millions of people live happier, more fulfilled, and more successful lives because I absolutely know that it's possible. If you want to be an absolute legend now and help me out, there's three things you can do. First is to share the pod. You can send it on some friends share it on social media, and simply just tell people about it. Second, you can leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening now. On Apple Podcasts, when you click into the pod, you can scroll down, and there's an option to leave a review and up to a five-star rating. And on Spotify, when you click into the pod, on the left-hand side, you'll see a little star. You can click on that and then leave up to a five-star rating again. And third thing, Lastly, just make sure you're subscribed wherever you're listening. Those three things, sharing the pod, leaving a rating and a review, and subscribing really, really help the podcast grow. Helps us help more people. So thank you so so much. Please connect with me over on social media. Instagram is at Brian Moylet, at offfield rugby linkedin. Is Brian Moylet and any thoughts questions feedback please let me know I would love to hear from you thanks Emil for listening today I really really appreciate it be good to yourself get after it and I will see you next week cheers
2: as soon as I come into the ring as soon as I come into the ring I'm gloved no stop it that's not true while I'm in the dressing room Five minutes before I come out, my gloves are laced up. I'm breaking my gloves down. I'm, bro- I'm pushing the lever in the back of my and gloves. I'm breaking the middle of the gloves so my knuckle could pierce through the leather. I feel my knuckle piercing against the tight leather gloves on the Everlast boxing gloves. When I come out, I have supreme confidence. But I'm scared to death. I'm totally afraid. I'm afraid of everything. I'm afraid of losing. I'm afraid of being humiliated, but I'm totally confident. The closer I get to the ring, the more confidence I get. The closer, the more confidence I get. The closer, the more confidence I get. All during my training, I've been afraid of this man. I thought this man might be capable of beating me. I've dreamed of him beating me, but, that, but I always stayed afraid of him. But the closer I get to the ring, I'm more confident. Once I'm in the ring, I'm a god. No one could beat me. I walk around the ring, but I never, I never take my eyes off my opponent. I keep my eyes on him, even if he's ready and pumping. And he can't wait to get his hands on me as well. I keep my eyes on him, I keep my eyes on him, I keep my eyes on him. Then once I see a chink in his arm, boom! One of his eyes may move, and then I know I have him. Then when he comes to the center of the ring, he still looks at me with his piercing look, and as if he's not afraid. But he already made that mistake when he When he looked down for that one-tenth of a second, I know I had him. He'll fight hard for the first two or three rounds, but I know I already broke his spirit. During the fight, I'm supremely confident. I'm moving my head. He's throwing punches. I'm making a miss and I'm countering. I'm hitting him to the body. I'm punching him real hard. And I'm punching and when I'm punching him, I know he's not able to take my punches. One, two, three punches. I'm throwing him punches and bunches. He goes down. He's out. I'm victorious. Mike Tyson, greatest fighter that ever lived.